Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 46, Strong Rulers, in which we meet one of the world's earliest landlords, a woman who could have been king, and finally reach the end of Senusaret III's long and prosperous reign. Over the five previous episodes, we have explored the reign of Kakaure Senusaret III from the political, international, literary, and religious angles. But the common thread running through these episodes has been the fact that Egypt is enjoying one of its most prosperous economic and cultural periods so far. But we haven't really explored this in any particular detail beyond the big-picture climate and administrative material. We've talked about the aristocracy and the royal family, but the economy encompasses every individual of a society. So, how do we know that the country as a whole was prospering? The answer comes to us from a man named Heka Nacht, who wasn't a member of the royal family, and wasn't an elite official or nobleman. He was a rural landlord, and held the very minor title of car priest. So he had some wealth, but probably not enough to live a life of leisure, or avoid working daily to ensure his family's sustenance. This makes Hekanakt the closest we have to a middle-class individual from ancient Egypt. He was a literate man, who could leave written evidence of his existence, but he was still connected to agriculture and the rural economy enough to give us a sense of what people outside the royal family and nobility experienced. Surprisingly, Hekanakt's existence was revealed entirely by accident. No tomb has been found belonging to him, and the location of his estate is still conjectural. The reason we know about him at all is because archaeologists digging in a tomb at Thebes found a collection of letters written by Hekanakt and buried in the rubble of another man's burial chamber. The letters reveal many details of daily life, and Hekanakt's personal concerns. In the words of historian John Wilson, they represent, quote, an extraordinarily vivid picture of the family life and concerns of a small landowner. No detail of land rental, the harvest, kitchen gossip, or the intrigues of his relatives was too small to escape the sharp eye of Hekanakt. End quote. So, without further ado, let's dive into the life of a rural farming landlord, and the affairs he dealt with day to day. The first letter was written during the annual flood, probably around November. Hekanakt was away from home, at an unnamed location south of Thebes. Realising that the flood would soon end, and the fields would need to be planted once more, Hekanakt wrote to his manager, a man named Mary Sue. Quote, Words written from the car priest Hekanakt to Mary Sue, concerning every part of our land that is flooded by the inundation. You are the one who shall cultivate it, and take heed. I will hold you accountable. 
Be very diligent in cultivating. Take care that the seed is guarded and all my property is protected. I will hold you accountable, so take good care of all my property. End quote. Mary Sue seems to have been in a position of some authority. Perhaps he was a relative of Hekanakt, or worked as his estate manager. Otherwise, this seems like a rather abrupt and unfortunate promotion. But he probably knew what he was doing, if Hekanakt's following remarks are any indicator. Quote, Arrange to have Hetty's son, Neket, travel down to Perha, which is south of Thebes, to cultivate two akhet of land on lease. They should do this using the linen woven at home. If they collect the barley that is owed to me, they can use that as well. If you have any leftover linen and don't have anything to do with it, have them lease more land according to its value. End quote. Quite an enterprising fellow, Hekanakt. Given the opportunity to lease more land than he'd planned for, he seized it with gusto. He also took great concern for the amount of resources at his disposal, and was acutely aware that situations could change, and sometimes you might wind up with a surplus of material. It also highlights a matter that I find, personally, quite fascinating. The fact that, for ancient Egyptians, one of the most useful and valuable items of trade was linen. It is versatile, it is durable, and it requires a lot of effort to produce, making it valuable. From at least the time of the Old Kingdom, and right the way through until the late New Kingdom, linen seems to have been an incredibly common resource to use as an item of trade. It's so common, in fact, that it is quite surprising no Egyptologist has yet done a concerted study on linen as a form of proto- or pseudo-currency. Historians, particularly of the economic faith, are unfortunately fixated on using things like metal or weights in order to evaluate currency and when it first showed up. You can obviously see why, because coinage is one of the major features of ancient economies. But that's not really useful in Egypt at this date. Rather, you need to look to other items, things like bread, beer, and linen. So, Hekanakt reveals one of the most important aspects, but also one of the most underappreciated aspects, of the Egyptian economy. Although it was mostly trade-based, with a payment in kind, rather than using currency, the Egyptians were starting to develop an awareness of certain objects being particularly useful for trade. Linen was the best of these. Hekanakt now moves to a more serious concern, revealing his somewhat stern manner and careful management of all his resources. Quote, Now look, Merisu, before I came upriver, you leased from me three quarters of an Akhet field, growing just lower Egyptian barley. Take care, do not defraud me of even one sack of my proper due. This is not the year for laziness of a man towards his master. End quote. It seems that Mary Sue was not only a manager, but an actual tenant of Hekanakt. In addition to acting as the overseer for the planting, he was independently leasing a parcel of land from Hekanakt in exchange for a cut of the harvest. For the economic historian, such exchanges and admonitions 
are decisive proof of one of Egyptology's more elusive concepts. The capacity for an individual to own, lease, and use land according to his wishes. In other words, it is evidence for the concept of private property as a feature of the Egyptian economy and society. It certainly wasn't as common as it is today, but it did exist in some places. The poor, or at least the moderately poor, could rent land from the wealthy in exchange for a share of the crops. As a result, our awareness of the Egyptian economy as something not exclusively dominated by the royal government becomes a lot clearer. Hekanakt was lucky. He had gained or inherited an estate. For many in Egyptian society, the option simply wasn't there. They lacked the resources. And he was guarding the privilege jealously, holding his appointed manager accountable for how the planting went ahead. I would not have wanted to be Mary Sue, for Hekanakt seems to have been a stern, even grumpy master. Quote, Now, concerning everything that Hetty's son, Neket, will do, take note, I have not calculated any more than one month's income for him, consisting of one sack of barley, with another sack for his dependents. If you exceed this amount, I will consider it theft on your behalf. Take care. End quote. Yeesh, thank heavens for contract protection and labour laws. Anyway, Hekanak's concern over income and how his people were paid reveals a lot more to us than simple stinginess. Like the aristocratic elites in government offices, Hekanak's extended circle became something akin to an early social network, or, more accurately, a patronage network. The landlord took care of his own, and saw to it that members of his family and the families of his staff were seen to. Quote, Now, little Sneferu has grown up. Take good care of him, and give him an income. And send my greetings to him a thousand times, a million times. Pay attention, now that I've written about it. And when the land is watered, Sneferu should cultivate it alongside you and Inpyu. Look after him well. Take care of Sneferu and Inpyu. You live with them, and you die with them. End quote. Hekanakt might be a classic example of the Egyptian farming estate operating on the basis of kinship. Sneferu has clearly been familiar to Hekanakt since his early youth, which suggests that he either grew up on the estate or is the child of someone who works there. Now that he's grown up, Hekanakt does not hesitate to give him an income and have him work in the fields. It's all very informal, in the way that you'll still find 90% of human enterprises and businesses functioning today. In fact, it's actually a very recent phenomenon to have workplaces populated by people who have little to no familial kinship with one another. That whole resume, interview, contract process, that is really recent. For the ancients across the world, and still most businesses today, kinship and familiarity dominated the game. Hekanakt has known Sneferu for a long time, and now does not hesitate to consider him a suitable worker. Perhaps, in some way, Hekanakt considered this part of his obligations. To give Sneferu this job 
is to make sure that the young man works for someone who knows him and who has an interest in his welfare, and helps him get a foot on the ladder of economic life. In many ways, this might be seen as a sort of middle-class version of Ma'at. Hekanak doesn't invoke the concept explicitly, but he is taking care of those beneath him, which is an essential tenet of good governance. So, in a way, he is enacting in day-to-day life the sort of concepts that were really important to the upper elites and the royal family at this time. Moving on from his young relative, Hekanakt now takes care for the household gossip. Quote, Now, expel that housemaid, Senin, from my house. Take care once this letter reaches you. She shall spend only one more day in my house. Is it really you, Mary Sue, who lets her do ill towards my concubine? Have I ever allowed ill to be done to you? Do your duty. Are you not established as my partner? Anyway, give greetings to my mother, Epi, a thousand times, a million times. And greetings to my wife, Hetepet, and the whole household, and my concubine, Neferet. End quote. I am very curious to know what that housemaid, Senin, did that caused Hekanakt to expel her. Perhaps she stole something or offended or insulted the concubine Neferet, or perhaps she was more generally disliked by the household, and it finally came to a climax. We'll never know exactly, but little details like these are what really make the letters of Hekanakt excel as one of the greatest insights and resources available to Egyptologists. The next major letter Hekanakt sent was to his mother, Epi, concerning the income of the family. Quote, A son speaks to his mother, the car priest Hekanakt, to his mother, Epi. How is your well-being through the benefaction of Montu, the god of Thebes? And how is your whole household? Do not worry about me. I am healthy and alive. Now, before I came upriver, I had fixed your incomes generously. But the Nile flood has been very high, and we have had to fix the incomes accordingly. The new household incomes are, for Epi and her servant woman, 77 litres of barley, for Hetepet and her servant woman, 77 litres, for Heti's son, Neket, and his dependents, 77 litres, for Merisu and his dependents, 77 litres, for Sneferu, 39 litres, for Inpu, 39 litres, and for Neferet, 32.5 litres. End quote. I've skipped a few people from the list, but the total income that Hekanakt distributes here amounted to about 760 litres of barley for a month. An average adult needed at least 25 to 30 litres of barley per month to eat comfortably. So the household was doing well with every person getting, on average, 35 litres or so a month. Times were good indeed. They must have been very good, because Hekanakt explicitly opened that letter by suggesting to his mother that the income was actually lower than usual. He refers to an overly high flood, and that he has had to adjust the income accordingly. So, if even the lean months saw each person getting more than their minimum requirements, then the household must have been living very comfortably. So thanks to Hekanakt, 
we have a measurable statistical picture of Egypt's prosperity during the very heights of the Middle Kingdom. We know how rural farming estates were managed, with the landlord emphasising kinship as a good basis for employment, and the care he took to expel workers who disrupted the peace of his home. Whether the prosperity that Hekanacht and his family enjoyed was true for everybody is impossible to prove. Obviously, those at the very bottom of the socio-economic ladder were not living as comfortably as Hekanacht. That's simply an unfortunate fact of the times. But Hekanacht is generally regarded as a good basis for interpreting the period as a whole. The general stability of the kingdom during this period makes it seem likely that the country as a whole was enjoying a period of, at the very least, modest prosperity. There are no references to any significant droughts or excessive floods. There is no suggestion of social instability, which often followed such droughts or excessive periods. So, at the very least, the average person was doing no worse than during the very heights of the Old Kingdom. In fact, given what we understand about how society was constructed during the Middle Kingdom, it's quite likely that those below the royal level were actually doing better. The Old Kingdom had been a time of incredible domination by the state. The Middle Kingdom was a time of less centralised authority and power. As a result, and with fewer enormous construction projects like pyramids hogging the resources, we might suppose that the average person was doing okay. And this prosperity dominated the period from the reign of Amenemhat I right through to the waning years of Kakaure Sinusaret III, to whom we have dedicated so many episodes. Sinusaret was truly, by Egyptian standards, a king among kings. He had led victorious campaigns, expanded and fortified Egyptian territory in Nubia, building immense and complex fortresses that still survive today. And he had built two magnificent royal tombs, at Dashur and Abydos. He had redefined the image of the king with his sombre, lifelike statues, and been the fortunate overseer of a cultural revival in which literary and artistic output flourished. The later years of this king are murky, and very few details survive. According to general tradition, Sinusaret died sometime around year 19. This is supported by the fact that no named documents survive from after this date, meaning that any evidence for a longer reign is rather circumstantial. That being said, there still might be some basis for thinking he lived longer. According to historical tradition, Sinusaret did in fact live long enough to celebrate a said festival. This is a celebration that was supposed to occur in a king's 30th year on the throne. Now, it's not unheard of for rulers to have celebrated them earlier, but most of the time, said festivals seem to have occurred in that period. So, Sinusaret III might very well have ruled as long as 30 years. Then there is the unusual case of the overseer of the storerooms, Iu Nefer, who set up a funerary stela during the reign of Sinusaret III, but was buried in the cemetery begun by his son, Amenemhat III. Since, in the opinion of Egyptologist Wolfram Grajetsky, Iu Nefer is unlikely to have died until the second half of Amenemhat's reign, 
then it is more likely that the funerary stela was set up before Senusaret died, but well into a co-regency with Amenemhat III. And so, through some admittedly weak and circumstantial data, with more than a few guesses, we come to the conclusion that around year 19, Senusaret actually appointed his son Amenemhat III as a co-regent. The king continued on living, but perhaps took a step back from the public limelight. The young prince Amenemhat, now a king, was born to an unknown woman, sometime around Senusaret's coronation. He took at least two wives in his lifetime, named Ayat, or Great Lady, and Kenemet Neferhedjet III, who both died early in his reign, and were buried at Dashur. He had a daughter, Neferutar, and a son named Amenemhat, and that is all we know of his family. I will return to the daughter soon, because she's quite interesting. At any rate, it was enough to ensure a succession. And when Senusaret finally died, sometime after his 30th year, he did so knowing that the line was secure. Looking back, it is easy to see that the reign of Senusaret III is one of the high points in Egyptian royal culture and political history. And we will hear more about this king as time goes on, because the Egyptians of later generations looked back on this period with the benefit of hindsight and no small degree of mythologizing. And they came to some very interesting conclusions about the 12th dynasty's overall significance. At any rate, Senusaret III died sometime around the year 1845 BCE, and the throne now passed properly to his son, Amenemhat III. Amenemhat was not as active as his father. He did not lead any campaigns personally, and only a few temples were constructed on his initiative. For the most part, he seems to have lived in Senusaret's shadow, and most of his efforts were spent simply finishing the work of his father. That being said, there are at least three noteworthy elements to his years in power, which we will explore now. The first of these concerned Nubia, and the fortresses which were now running at full capacity. Thanks to the conquests of 12th dynasty kings, and the steady, ongoing building program in the region. Immense fortifications served to protect Egyptian travellers and traders. They also offered a rather unexpected economic and religious opportunity. Until the advent of Amenemhat III, the island of Elephantine had been one of the most important sites in all of Egypt. It was here, at the southernmost point of Egypt itself, that observers could chart the beginning of the annual flood. As the waters began to rise at Elephantine, they knew that the inundation had begun, and a swift runner or boat could bring the good news downriver to the major centres at Thebes, Abydos, Memphis, and Echtawi. But now, thanks to the fortifications, this process could be observed weeks earlier than before, and farmers to the north could receive word of the inundation well in advance of its true beginning. This was incredibly beneficial on an economic level, because they could now leave their crops growing until the last possible minute, and begin to harvest them as the waters began to rise and the news arrived. As a result, the output of their harvests probably grew noticeably, and fewer were lost thanks to the early warning system which Nubian fortresses made possible. 
How do we know this initiative was begun under Amenemhat III, though? Well, it's very simple. Egyptian workers at the fortress of Semna, which now marked the southernmost limit of Egyptian territory, began carving lines showing the highest point the flood had reached in that year. Wonderfully, they also made a point of dating these lines according to the king and the regnal year. Thanks to their modest efforts, which lasted for about 150 years, we now have both a stable record of the Nile floods and a mostly complete chronology of the king's ruling during this period. Thank you, anonymous Egyptians. We owe you so much. So that's the first of the major occurrences in Amenemhat's reign. The second was the renewal of large mining expeditions being sent to the Red Sea and the Sinai Peninsula. From a great variety of sources, it is estimated that no less than 25 different expeditions were sent in Amenemhat's reign out to the east. To reach the Sinai Peninsula, many expeditions seem to have travelled directly east from the capital, arriving at a site known today as Ein Sukna, from which they would then board ships and sail across the Suez Gulf to the peninsula itself. Here, the labourers would mine copper, attack Bedouin tribes living in the region, and collect turquoise. They also developed sites like Serabit al-Kadim, where the important temple of Hathor stood. They were lucrative enterprises, but not as prestigious as the campaigns of Sinusaret III. In fact, Sinai expeditions had not been a prestigious or noteworthy achievement since the Old Kingdom and the very first dynasties. Amenemhat, it seems, was playing it safe. Nevertheless, these are notable, for they suggest that Egyptians now had a very firm sense of what territory belonged to them, and they were taking full advantage of that fact. 25 expeditions is a lot by most standards, and since the king doesn't seem to have gone in person, we can assume that there was not much need for large-scale military activity. Egypt and its little empire was at peace. Which brings us finally to the third, and in my opinion, most important element of Amenemhat III's reign. I mentioned earlier that the king had a daughter, Neferu Ta, and she was important. Well, now it's time to find out why. Neferu Ta, which means the god Ta is beautiful, was born after Amenemhat came to the throne, and was an extremely unusual woman. You see, sometime during the king's later years, in a totally unprecedented situation, Neferu Ta was given the honour of having her name written inside a royal cartouche. The cartouche, an oval of woven rope containing the name of a king, is one of royal Egypt's most well-known symbols, but prior to the New Kingdom, it was used exclusively for kings. Neferu Ta, for some reason, was accorded this honour, which, in my estimation, fits with the idea that this woman was acting as a secondary ruler, helping to rule the kingdom alongside her father. To mark her improved status, Neferu Ta was granted a small pyramid at Hawara, the primary cemetery of this period. Her tomb contained several objects, including silver vases, and the remains of two coffins, one of which had gold leaf left on it. By this conclusion, her burial was lavish, and her status must have been immense. 
On top of that is the fact that she appeared alongside her father on the walls of a temple. There is a site near the Fayum Oasis called Medinet Mahdi, literally City of the Past. It was at Medinet Mahdi that a temple was begun during the reign of Amenemhat III. This temple was dedicated to an obscure cobra goddess who was associated with the harvest, and became a prominent but local place of worship during the reigns of Amenemhat and his son. The two kings both appear in the decorations of this temple, making offerings to the goddess. But in one scene, standing beside her father, is Neferu Tar. Coincidence? I think not! Neferu Tar was playing the royal game, and she was playing it at the highest levels. Whether she was ruling the kingdom on her father's behalf, or being groomed for power on his eventual death, is unclear. Perhaps she took on the burdens of governing alongside her father, especially after Sinuseret III had passed on. Although she was only a baby when Sinuseret took Amenemhat as co-regent, she might have come of age by the time the old king finally died. If Amenemhat felt unwilling or unable to govern alone, he might have invested his daughter with the offices of rule. It is a very unusual situation, but it's not the first time we've seen women take a powerful and active role in the government of the kingdom. As early as the 4th and 5th dynasties, powerful queens by the name of Kentikaus had essentially governed the country in the name of their young sons, acting as regents in a time of need. Neferutar might have done something similar, acting on behalf of her father, who for some reason did not feel willing to govern alone. If so, she must have been a formidable and talented woman. It is also possible, but entirely speculative, that Amenemhat was not physically or mentally capable of soul rule. Even though he enjoyed a long reign, he left few monuments of his own, and seems to have been content finishing those started by his father. He sent a few expeditions to the Sinai, but led no campaigns in person. In many respects, then, he seems to have been, well, passive. In such circumstances, it's hard not to speculate that perhaps Amenemhat III was not entirely physically or mentally able. He may have been sickly or perhaps mentally disabled in some form. But I'm speculating, and maybe we're looking into this too much. What we do know is that Neferutar was regarded by her father as a form of co-regent, or at the very least, a potential successor. While this didn't come to fruition in a formal kingship, it was still a bold move in an otherwise quiet reign. I'm of the opinion that Neferu Ta is worth a great deal more investigation. Unfortunately, history books don't seem to feel the same way, and they mostly refer to the reign of Amenemhat III, with very little reference to Neferu Ta which is a shame, because there is probably a great deal yet to be uncovered. If Neferu Tar was being groomed for power, then she was doubly unfortunate, for she did not live to take up the role. She died before her father, and was buried at Hawara in her small pyramid. Sadly, her mummy did not survive the ages, and we do not know the cause of her death. All we know is that the co-regency passed to her brother, Amenemhat IV, and life went on. The princess queen was soon forgotten, and is now just a footnote in most books. Which is, sadly, 
where she will remain for now. Until such time as more excavations are undertaken at her pyramid, and the temple of Medinet Mahdi, we will never know the full extent of her influence, and her oversight of royal affairs. What is certain is that Neferuta is a major detour in the usually straightforward narrative of royal succession. Her status is too unclear to be anything but problematic. Was she a princess, a queen, or a king in all but name? Although I have my suspicions, the answer is yet unknown. What is clear is that Amenemhat III's reign was dominated by its co-regencies, with Senusaret III, Neferuta, and Amenemhat IV all sharing power with this king at one point or another. The reign of Amenemhat III is a strange and twisted little affair. 